Saturday's march is on. After spending much of the past week on a collision course with protesters, last night Rishi Sunak said marches in support of Palestinian people could go ahead on Armistice Day. But that won't be the end of the row. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, has described the protests like this. I think I've been pretty clear that these are hate marches. To my mind, there's only one way to describe those marches. They are hate marches. You call them hate marches. Do you think everyone on these marches is hateful, as you put it? I don't think there's any other way but to call them hate marches. And the head of the Metropolitan Police, who says the protests will be allowed to go ahead, responded with this. She's picked two words out of the English language and strung them together in a way. That's, that's something that she's talking about. I don't know whether she means everybody there or some of the people there. That's not for me. Yeah, this is a decision that the Metropolitan Police Commissioner has made and he has said that he can ensure that we safeguard remembrance uh, for the country this weekend as well as keep the public safe. Now, my job is to hold him accountable for that. Part of the dispute centres on a few key chants. One of them goes like this. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. It's a phrase with different meanings, depending on who you ask and on who's chanting it. To some, it's a call for Israel to be wiped off the map. Here's Israel's ambassador to the UK. From the river to the sea has only one meaning, that if you look at the map, that Israel shouldn't exist and Israel should be totally eliminated from the Middle East map. And what is not, if not, ethnic cleansing of the Jewish people from their homeland? To others, including the daughter of one of the Israelis taken hostage by Hamas, it's a call for peace. She fought all her life for um, to create a place between the river and the sea that is shared by both people. A Labour MP, Andy MacDonald, has already been suspended for using it. We'll not rest until we have justice. Until all people, Israelis and Palestinians, between the river and the sea, can live in peaceful liberty. Free, free Palestine! Another controversial chant was this one at a Hizbut Tahrir protest. The police decided not to prosecute anyone, saying that word has had an affiliation to terrorists, but actually has an enormous amount of legitimacy in the Islamic faith. Now, I'm a great believer in freedom of speech, that people have the right to protest. But isn't it wise not to protest on a day that is held aside for something special? It's literally called Armistice Day and we're marching for an armistice. In just four weeks, the conflict in the Middle East has already changed politics in Britain. On Wednesday, there was this. 
Overnight, a Labour MP has resigned from the party's front bench over Sakir Starmer's refusal to call for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Imran Hussain says he wants to strongly advocate for one. Sakir says a ceasefire would allow Hamas to regroup. And when it comes to public opinion, a growing number of British people have made up their minds. Support for either side appears to be finely balanced. While 19% mainly sympathise with Israel, 19% mainly sympathise with the Palestinian cause too. And a further 31% sympathise with both sides equally. And those who have picked a side showed a high level of sympathy for the other. There is also a generational divide. Twice as many British people over 65 would choose the Israeli side if asked, but three times as many 18 to 24-year-olds would opt for the Palestinians. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Israel-Gaza, how the conflict divided Britain and the Labour Party. I am Trevor Phillips. I am a semi-regular Times columnist. I write every fortnight. I chaired the Commission for Racial Equality for a few years and then created what is now the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Amongst the things that we did was create the 2010 Equality Act, and we also put the British National Party out of business. Trevor, you were in Westminster over the weekend, where you saw some of the protests supporting... Palestinians taking place. Just describe what it was like. What were you seeing? Because I present this political interview show on Sunday morning on Sky, on Saturday I am in Sky's Westminster studio because the production team and I meet and we talk about who we have on and how we're going to run the programme. I've now been through three of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations on Saturdays in central London. I've organised a lot of demonstrations as when I was a young activist. So I look at them as a veteran troublemaker. Um, so I'm quite well aware that there are people there who could only be described as extremists. And there is a very small minority who are looking for a ruck, preferably with the police. And then there are people who I think have more sinister motives. But the truth is, looking at these demonstrations... They're unusually overwhelmed by people who are none of those categories. I would say that the people who are in those categories I've just described would be a tiny minority. And most of the people on these demonstrations fall into two groups. One is probably young students who are activists, almost all in this case, people manifestly of a Muslim faith. I mean, you could say that you can't tell who's a Muslim, but actually if people want to demonstrate the signs of their faith, you can see them. And the biggest group actually on these demonstrations are families, young families particularly, though there are some older people there. Uh, And what was striking, because it's unusual in these big demonstrations, the number of small children and young children who were there. And it struck me that This is not your typical angry political demonstration. This is a demonstration of people who identify largely because of faith and culture with people in Gaza and who are coming out because of that identity. 
you know, they may pick up some of the slogans from the river to the sea and Palestine will be free and so on and so forth. But I would not accord to the majority of people that I saw on Saturday afternoons sinister motives that we accord to some of the extremists. So seeing those demonstrations, as you say, with you know, a number of young children and families, how did it make you feel? And how did it make you reflect on how it makes other people feel? If you're asking me, did I feel the anxiety that I know some people say they feel about these demonstrations? No. But that's because neither am I a Muslim, though my ancestors were Muslims for centuries, uh, nor am I Jewish. And I suspect that were I Jewish, I would have had a very different reaction to hearing groups of people chanting from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free, because to people who have relatives in Israel, that has a very different meaning to the meaning that it would have for me. They find it terrifying. Yeah. And Trevor, as you write, this conflict in the Middle East has really thrown up questions of identity here. It does feel like it's fractured society and, and even started to change political allegiances. Just talk us through that. I think that we should keep some aspects of this in perspective. The truth of the matter is most of the country doesn't really want to take sides. Most people who don't identify strong, very strongly with either Israel or the Palestinians would just like everybody to be nice to everybody else. Well, of course, we know that's best described as naive. doesn't make it ignoble, actually. I think that's a rather good thing about this country, that we, generally speaking, don't like the idea of people shooting each other on the basis of who they are. So we are horrified by Hamas, but we are not on side for simply punishing all Palestinians. So I think the first thing is that we do have to separate the passions of those who have what people these days call a lived connection from the vast majority of the country who simply would like to see people live at peace, don't want to see children in these horrific situations, don't want to see people murdered, raped, or bombed out of their homes. But the, the bigger point I think you make is an, a very important one. I think that the spillover of what you might call the passions of identity, the idea that actually in politics, what matters is not what you believe, but who you are, are in recent centuries anyway, unfamiliar to this country, and they are unsettling. And I think this eruption of passions based on whether you are Muslim or Jewish and which side you take in that conflict is really unfamiliar, really unsettling, and I would say unwelcome. And talk us through that. I mean, how do you see it playing out across the political spectrum? Well, we know that actually the real difficulty here has turned out to be greater for the left than it has for the right. The immediate problem has arisen for the Labour leadership who have made a decision that they will support, above all, Israel's right to defend its people 
and that, that Labour has put that as a higher priority than anything else in this situation. But what that does mean is that for the Labour Party, which in the last 20 to 25 years has benefited from the fact that most people of Muslim extraction in this country, when they vote, will vote Labour. Last figures I saw was something like 75, 80%. That's created a problem for Labour. And the problem is not a simple one. It is not that most people who are of Pakistani or Bangladeshi background do not like Israel or dislike Jews. I don't think that is true. But what they do want is for the party that they support to display a clear preference for their feelings in this situation. So what Keir Starmer has done is set out a political position which is, if you like, strategic. While I understand calls for a ceasefire at this stage, I do not believe that it is the correct position now. Our current calls for pauses in the fighting for clear and specific humanitarian purposes, and which must start immediately, is right in practice as well as principle. What his voters want is for Keir Starmer to set out a position which identifies with them. What they want the leader to say is, I feel your pain. I am on your side in this situation. And that's the awkward part for our politics. Now, it may be that at some point the Conservatives will face something similar, but I don't think that's the case at the moment. I think it's a bigger problem for Labour. The Labour leadership has, if you like, chosen strategy. Their voters want a display of identity. We should say with the Conservatives, it's not on the same scale, but we have seen Conservative peers like Saeed Awasi coming out and criticising the party's response to the crisis. I think there are some things we need to say. Israel is not Netanyahu, the Palestinian people are not Hamas, and the protesters on the streets of London are neither protesting for Hamas nor are they hate marchers. The Home Secretary decided to embolden and make this a political issue, to embolden the far right, to make this a political issue, knowing full well, and she'd been briefed by the Met, of what the route of the march was going to be and the fact that they didn't have concerns at this stage. I don't think that represents a big strand of Conservative opinion. And you talked about the challenge for Keir Starmer and how he seems to be adopting a strategic approach which doesn't allow many of his supporters from the Muslim community to feel like their concerns have been addressed. Is it possible as a leader to do both, you know, to not favour one section of the electorate over another, but to, to, to favour certain values, to be able to sort of say what happened on the 7th of October was a horrific terrorist attack and we empathise with Israel, but at the same time to hold the Israelis to account for what's happening in Gaza now? I imagine it's it's possible to utter words that do what you've just said. But I don't think, if I'm honest, that's actually quite the question that is being asked. I mean, most of us don't pay much attention to politicians anyway, full stop. When we do pay attention to politicians, we are less interested in the straightforward logic of their positions or the cleverness of their language. What we pay attention to is, are they expressing something 
that resonates with our own feelings. I think Keir Starmer has to pay attention to the completely legitimate feelings of, what, two, two and a half million of his own voters. He may not agree, but he has to find a way of explaining to those voters that he's not taking the stance he's taking because he's taking them for granted or he doesn't hear their feelings. He's got to find a way of explaining why the path he's chosen is the best one to help the people of Gaza out of the awful place that they have been put in, partly by, yes, by the Israelis, but also by Hamas. And that's very difficult. But of course, if you want to be a leader, nobody's ever going to tell you it's easy. Coming up, we'll find out why the row around protests and remembrance isn't all it's cracked up to be. That's in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you look at the protests that you passed last weekend, whole families, whole sections of society are coming out and making it clear that you know they're, they're there in solidarity, but there is also a slight problem in that there is no part of the political spectrum at the moment that seems to be addressing their opinions. In some ways, it feels almost a bit like 2003, where you had people coming out and marching against the invasion of Iraq, but nobody, no political party, well, no, none of the main political parties, not the Conservatives and not Labour, were against it or were sort of critical of it. Is, there, is this a, a moment where you do have just this disconnect between our politicians and where certainly a portion of society is. That's one way of putting it. But, you know, let's bear in mind there are all sorts of other groups of people who also feel that disconnect. If you go to any of our rundown seaside towns, one of the first things that anybody will tell you is that they feel they've been forgotten, they've been left behind. My point really here is that we are going through a period in which the way we do our politics, the basis on which our great political parties are formed, no longer reflects the passions, the desires, 
if you like, the top of mind questions of large parts of the society. Of politics for the best part, certainly my lifetime, probably for uh, since Industrial Revolution, has been based on, if you like, the division between those who own property and companies and so on, and those who work in them. And you had a party that represented the first, called the Conservative Party, and you had, had a party that represented the second, called the Labour Party. And my background is, you know, my parents were immigrants. They came and they worked. They were very poor people. My father worked in railways and the post office. My mother worked in a sweatshop. We were natural Labour people. And the Labour Party was founded to represent people like us. So our kind of cultural affinity, never mind what the politics were, what the policies were, but our cultural affinity lay with Labour. Something similar would be true about somebody who lives in a market town where the important thing was the interest of local merchants or the rural rural economy, which was very much represented by conservatives. And nobody there is making sort of big ideological arguments. They would just say, we are conservatives because that party looks after our interests. Our problem now is that for many people, and this is not just a a problem in the United Kingdom, it's very true in the United States, it's true in some parts of Europe too. For many people, those affinities have broken down. And the problem that we have is that the political parties that, that exist and sit in Parliament no longer have, if you like, the social base, which is why you have this very odd situation that the Labour Party has as its two great voting pillars right now, Pakistani and Bangladeshi Muslims, three, four million people, and graduates in London and and big university towns, another two, three million people, not working class people in the old steel or mining towns. And the conservatives have now a different social base, some of which is to do with the suburbs, some of which is to do with disaffected Redwall and coastal city towns, which feel they've been left behind by all those clever graduates that now support Labour. And our problem is that at the moment, both of the big parties are wrestling with the fact that they were formed in a different era based on a different social structure, and they don't quite know how to deal with the contemporary social structure. And this issue has brought that to the fore. This issue has sharpened it absolutely dramatically. You know, there might have been something different that would have made it a bigger issue for the Conservatives. But it happens that it's this issue and it expresses itself as a problem for the Labour Party more than it does for the Conservatives. But the underlying issue is the fact that our political parties in general are now searching for if you like, I think what the political scientists would call a new social base, and they haven't found it. And in the way that it's sort of fracturing society right now over this issue, you know, at the moment we've heard the government saying they want people to be charged for chanting from the river to the sea. Is it changing politics to the degree that it's even changing where parties are on on 
the idea of freedom of speech. So, you know, the Tories would normally be against censorship to spare people's feelings and would be for freedom of speech. And now we're sort of seeing a complete reversal. Is it changing politics fundamentally? I think the answer to that is probably yes. I, I, I wouldn't, by the way, characterise the Conservative attitude to freedom of speech in quite that way. I think everybody likes to say that they've got an absolutist position pro-freedom of speech or against offence or so on. But one of the things that I do is as chair of um, Index on Censorship, which is a global charity, been in existence for 50 years, came into existence to publish the works of suppressed authors in the Soviet era from behind the Iron Curtain. But now we publish work from all around the world where people are having their journalism or their paintings or their films suppressed. And I think that freedom of expression, I'm a bit of an absolutist, but even I recognise that freedom of expression has to be tempered by law and by consensus. Now, when it comes to this issue of what people may or may not chant, I personally have a very, very simple rule about this. I think people legally should be able to use whatever words they like as long as they don't uh, cross the threshold of incitement. And the practical expression of this is that I don't think anybody should be locked up for standing on the pavement on the other side of the road and shouting the N-word at me. I don't like it. I don't think we ought to do it. But I don't think that should be made illegal. However, if they shout to their friends, let's go get the N-word, meaning me, that's incitement and that mm. should be made illegal. So there's a distinction here. Where we get into rather muddy waters, if I can use those terms, is where the words mean something to the person who is uttering them, but mean something quite different to some other people who are hearing them. And that's why we, we have a problem with this from the river to the sea thing, because I think for most of the people, I mean, there are extremists who know what they're saying, but I think for most of the people that I have seen on these demonstrations, in their heads, that's just a kind of, we should allow Palestinians to determine their own destiny, to have votes, elect their own leaders, and so on and so forth. And they're not thinking about the next step. However, if you're Jewish and you have relatives in Israel, or even if you don't, but Israel is in your mind the one refuge in the world where, as a Jew, you ought to be able to feel safe. What that sounds like to you is that last refuge should not exist, and we will drive everybody who is in that refuge into the sea. So what is said is not necessarily what is heard. And I, in the end, do come down on the side of people who say you can't lock people up for saying unkind or horrible or disturbing things. But what you can do is explain to them that what they think they're saying is not what other people are hearing and that in a civilised, decent society, 
you need to take that into account when you're talking or chanting or carrying placards. And just finally, Trevor, there's already a row brewing over Remembrance Sunday this weekend and whether it'll be disrupted by protests about the Palestinian issue. I do have very grave concerns about that march, both in terms of uh, how it sits with acts of solemn remembrance and the kind of intimidation that, that is being sent out by the chants and everything else that goes on at those marches. There's nothing inappropriate about us marching for peace on Armistice Day. Our main slogan is ceasefire now, and the word armistice actually means ceasefire. What are your thoughts on it? Nobody, as far as I know, plans a march on Remembrance Sunday. Nobody, as far as I know, plans a march on Armistice Day at the time when we mark the armistice. As I understand it, the march that is planned will take place a couple of hours after we mark the armistice and nowhere near the cenotaph. So in practice, the solemn ceremonies that we observe in this country, which are in some ways sacred to everybody, and by the way, are, I think, incredibly important in bringing people together across the lines of faith and race and gender and geography, nobody, as far as I know, actually plans to disrupt any of that because of the Israel-Gaza conflict. But what is happening, of course, is that there are people who just want to have a kind of a political ruck, what we would call an air war, so they can come on shows like yours and say that the people on the other side are evil and you mustn't listen to them. We need to be asking people, exactly where is this conflict going to take place? Exactly how is it going to happen? What exactly is it that you want banned? Because I think that if those questions start being asked, we may suddenly find that actually... It isn't quite the issue that we think it is. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Times columnist Trevor Phillips. Trevor is just one of the Times and Sunday Times brilliant columnists, and you can read all of his work and the work of the other brilliant columnists at the Times and the Sunday Times at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. Since the Israel-Hamas conflict began, we've been taking a look at the issue from all angles. If you're interested in learning more about the history of the conflict, then do listen back to our episode, The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Explained. The producers today were Edward Drummond and James Shield. The executive producer was Kate Ford and sound design was by Tom Birchall. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.